All right, before we get rolling today, um, if you don't have our app, eChurch on your device, you can download our app, and we'd love for you to fill out a connection card. We have um, a few things coming out this week. We want you to be in the know, so we'd love to have your email address um, by filling out a connection card, either online or you're doing something about the program and fill that out. Uh, we are doing something really special next week. We're doing something called Dinner Church. We did this a couple months ago, and next week we're doing it with uh, City of Refuge, which is a ministry that's been meeting in our living room space. Um, they are Central American, I'm sorry, South American refugees that have fled here and are awaiting uh, or have been detained and are awaiting um, extradition. Um, but we, while they are here, we want to be a welcoming community to them. Um, one thing we're doing for them is we are collecting coats. Uh, we just asked them, like, hey, tell us what you need. Like, we know you need a space to meet. What else can we do? They said we need coats because uh, we're used our either winter season. Most of them don't have that. I know that many of us have extra coats that are gently used or even brand new that we could use. So we're going to be collecting those today. There's a black bin in the back. Uh, we've already collected probably two dozen, but we're going to keep them coming. There's like 30 to 50 of them. I don't know. I asked them, hey, what sizes do you need? I got no reply. They, they didn't really have an idea. So I'm like, well, we're just going to grab as many as we can and give them all to you guys. So if you have brought a coat, uh, you can put it in that black bin. We're going to collect them next Sunday as well. So if you forgot or you're just not knowing about it, bring your coat or coats next Sunday. We also have women's Bible study meeting on Wednesday nights at the living room, and that's 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m., so if you want to connect and grow, that takes place every week. God's doing it. The living room is about a block from here. And finally, if you believe in what God's doing in our church, in our community, and what we're doing with City of Refuge and, and other things, we'd love for you to financially support Restore Church. All right, so we're going to continue this series called This is Real Magic. And um, <clears throat> there's a few resources I want to provide um, that I've kind of taken bits and chunks from to create this series. One of them is Letters from a Skeptic by Greg Boyd. So Boyd uh, is a kind of a pastor, theologian. He pastors a church in Minnesota. He went to like Yale for his MDiv, and he went to Princeton for his PhD. He's a pretty smart guy. He wrote it was a book, and it's based on a series of letters that him and his dad wrote back and forth to each other. His dad was an atheist. And through these series of letters and really hard questions that Greg's dad asked him, his dad became a Christian. And it's just really, I think sometimes we just need to have space to ask really difficult questions of the Christian faith. And it's a great book. Um, and I, th I think it's really cheap on Kindle, if you want to check that out. Another book I've been using is Philosophers Without Gods, Meditations on Atheism and the Secular Life. It's a series of essays written by multiple different humanists and atheists. And um, I like to read them and catch them in their best light and their best arguments and, and uh, quote them. And so I like to see what, you know, what's the latest, what's new, what, what are they writing about, what are they thinking. And then here is real magic, which has nothing to do with God. It's just about a magician's journey into that uh, art and into that practice. And the first half of the book is about how, kind of a memoir of how he became a magician, and then he burned out. And the second half of the book, he goes to India to kind of rediscover his wonder of magic. And it's just a really fun read. And I'm going to quote some more of that today. So I saw something on Twitter today, the land of great theology, that reminded me of the anticipation of Advent. Uh, like many people, 
I love the Star Wars franchise. I wouldn't. I'm not one of those people like that dresses up and waits in line at the movie theater. Like that's a bit extreme for my take for my for my liking. Um, but it's been you know like a few years ago, The Force Awakens came out, and that was the first new Star Wars movie in like 15 years. And for the fanatics, they don't even recognize the prequels. They're like, no, no, no. It's been 30 years since Star Wars made a movie. And that was, I remember, a big deal for people who like Star Wars movies. There was a, a big level of anticipation watching the trailer over and over again. It was all over the place. It had only been 15 years since the last one. When Jesus was born, it was 400 years of God being silent of humanity waiting real upon the Messiah to come, for God to speak. That's real temptation, or that's real anticipation. Waiting for a miracle, I would imagine in first century Israel, had reached desperation level. And then it happened. And so we continue our series today. This is real magic. And we're going to begin with part of the Christmas story. So if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 8 in the New Testament, It's on page 723, I believe, or no, 722, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 20, so we're kind of picking up the Christmas story, kind of right in the middle here, page, did I say Luke 8? I meant Luke 2, so it's on page 716, sorry about that, Luke 2, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 20. Um, Jesus has been born. That's where we pick up the story. In verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been found. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pines in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So the angels appear. I just want to focus in on a few parts of the story. The angels appear, and they give an introduction. All right? they, they let the shepherds know, we have some good news to tell you. And then in verse 11, verse 11 is the climactic point. It's the one sentence that changed the course of history. They say, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then they give, him, they give the shepherds instructions on how to find him. And then the angels celebrate. All right, they're singing and celebrating. The main point, Savior has come. He is the Messiah, Lord. Now, the word Lord, let's zero in even more. That word is used in the New Testament to describe Jesus over 700 times. It is the most common word used to describe him. 
So Jesus' lordship from the moment of his birth all throughout what we know, what we see in scripture is Lord, his lordship is emphasized in the Christmas story. Now we're going to come back to that in a bit, but knowing that it's used over 700 times to describe Jesus, everybody used that word to describe him. You know who didn't use it? Not one time? Jesus. He never used that word to describe himself. So then it's like, wait, what? That's kind of weird. Like, why wouldn't he, like what people, you probably name, like when he uh, after the resurrection, uh, one of the disciples, Thomas, doubting Thomas, you've probably heard of him. He doesn't really believe it's Jesus, and then he realizes it's him, and he, he exclaims, my Lord and my God. He uses that word Lord to describe him. Jesus doesn't correct him. And this happens a lot throughout the Gospels of people referring to him as Lord and him not correcting them, but he also doesn't use it to describe himself. So why was Jesus so coy? Like, that's one of the questions I always wonder. Like, why was he so ambiguous sometimes, so hidden, um, intentionally mysterious is, is another way to maybe think about it. You think about, like, a lot of times um, people asked him questions and he would answer with a question. I mean, how that would drive us Westerners nuts. Like, we want answers. We want clarity. We want spreadsheets and bullet points. And that is not how he did it. And I'm not sure why. I, I think with... Jesus, there are an infinite amount of reasons for every word he spoke and every act he performed. I I think there is just an infinite depth to him. We cannot grasp his level of brilliance. It's impossible to encapsulate. But one reason that comes to mind for me as to why he was so intentionally mysterious um, is that I think that he refused to abide by our rationality don't refuse he's the holy rebel like i don't like the kind of guy that's like don't you can't put me in a box don't even try yet the, the words you use to describe me they're not even good enough for me like we try to make him fit into our language our vision our understanding of who god is and what he should be it's just not possible um <clears throat> have you guys ever heard of the musician uh, david blaine all right he's he, he's, uh, I'm not like some magician guru, but he's one of my favorites. Like he, he's a really fascinating guy to watch. One of his habits that I find particularly interesting is that he constantly, he has this character that he plays and he never breaks character. He has, he's just of darkness and mystery. Like even when people are like laughing and like, what? He's just like dead serious, stone faced. Like he just exudes darkness and he's ultra serious all the time. But here's the thing, no matter what he does and no matter like how he presents himself, it's all sleight of hand. It's all an act. Like if we asked him and he had to reveal how he did, uh, why he had his persona or how, he, how to explain his magic tricks, um, and they're awesome magic tricks, but we could wrap our heads around him. He could say, this is how I did it. And we would all be like, oh, we would all understand immediately because it's just sleight of hand. It's not real magic. There's an explanation. But not so with Christ. Jesus exudes this mystery and this refusal to fit into words and human understanding, and it's not an act. It's real. Like We can't fully grasp the extent of who Jesus is. So it's this real magic. It's a long-standing truth, but it needs to be rediscovered. Because right now, I think it's being hidden in our culture, and I don't think many of us realize how susceptible we are to what sleight of hand is versus real magic. 
So before we dive any further in, I want to read this story from Nate Staniforth in his book, Real Magic. Uh, he's right around <clears throat> his breaking point <laughs> where he's, uh, he, his burnout ended when he walked off stage in the middle of a performance and just, and it was after a really successful trip or a trick. People were clapping and then he just stood there and stared at him and got silent and then he walked off. And this is right around that time that he's just kind of had enough. So I'm going to read part of this story. He says, One night in New Jersey, a group of people gathered at the front of the stage after the show for pictures, and a woman in the group kept insisting I tell her how one of the illusions was done. I think she was a reporter for the college paper, 19, I'm guessing, and not even trying to be nice. Why are you doing this? She finally asked. What do you mean? It's all fake. She's a writer. Oh, it's fake, so you can tell me how you did it. I wanted to explain that magic is fiction. It's like a writer of fiction. A magician does, not every, does everything possible to make an illusion feel real in the moment. Good books feel real. Good movies feel real. Good magic feels real, too. I wondered if she was upset with J.D. Salinger for inventing Holden Caulfield, as if any of the power of Catcher in the Rye depended on its being the story of an actual teenager. But she was having none of it. So why can't you tell me? If it's not real, are you just keeping it a secret because it makes you feel powerful? Nate said, do I look particularly powerful to you right now? This was not going well. Whatever, she said. I'm just going to Google it. Unsentenced away. I'm just going to Google it. There. In one sentence, she had identified something new in the world. Some new way of seeing things or of thinking about things. Here was the cynicism of our modern age, and I despised it. Information is now so easy to find that few of us are strong enough to resist the temptation of presuming we already know more than we actually do. Our wor worldviews are still built on the foundations of our own limited understanding, but we now live under the dangerous illusion that they are reinforced and supported by all of the knowledge that has ever existed. If I don't have the answers now, I can find them, the thinking goes, and without even noticing we shrink our world down to the size of our certainties. I read that and I was like, boom, that is such astute observation from Nate. Um, <clears throat> there are two prevalent methods that he mentions in there uh, to reaching certainty, or where we think we're certain about something. So the two that I'm going to put under the category of sleight of hand, like they seem real, and there are bits of them there are, but they're not, they don't lead anywhere. So the first one is information, which is, I have knowledge. I know because I Googled it. I read it. I studied it. Maybe I even have a PhD. Uh, uh, the fancy philo philosophical term for this is modernism. Right? This is a, a, a hundreds years old movement. The second part of the sleight of hand is completely different and unique, it's, but I'm going to call it experience. I know what truth is because I experienced it. And the fancy philosophical term for this is postmodernism. These are the two most prevalent worldviews of the first and second worlds. This is how most people who live in first world countries or second world countries view the world and they have no idea a lot of the time. They just assume this is how it's always been. So whether we realize it or not, this is indifference how we view the world. They aren't evil. They just aren't real magic, and we have to know the difference between the two. We have to question these popular ways of 
finding out how the world exists, how, what we believe, how we operate. Information and experience are the two dominant worldviews in our culture. Real magic, I'm going to use one word to describe real magic. You could pick something else, but I'm going to go with knowledge. I know because I realize the first two have limits. Information and experience have limits, so therefore, so do I. Knowledge forces me to wonder, to love, to be in awe, to dialogue, to discuss, to doubt. Knowledge is, knowledge is humble pie, right? real knowledge. Knowledge is the shepherds looking up at the angels and listening to the good news and being overcome with both the experience of the angels appearing and then the information they delivered. It was overwhelming. They couldn't comprehend it. It was too big to encapsulate. So I would ask you that you consider the implications that this has for humanity and for you. This is what Nate had to say on the topic. He says, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all true science. Whoever does not know it, who can no longer assuming you under wonder or stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. Assuming you understand something you actually don't becomes an ethical issue more than an intellectual one. There's a danger or maybe even violence to the belief that you already know something or someone completely. Real knowledge doesn't allow you to understand the world. Real knowledge destroys the illusion that you understand. People gravitate toward the sleight of hand, toward information and experience in order to reach their certainties. I see the danger of certainty playing out both inside the church and outside the church. People form these polarizing links of information around these worldviews, and it's a mixed bag of people grabbing some information, grabbing some personal experience, wrapping it up. That's truth. That's the way to live. This is the way the world works. And they feel the longer they live, the more information they, they gather, the more experience they have, the more firm they become in these certainties. And I think these are the two great idols of millions of people in our culture. The educated and the uneducated are both susceptible to it. So I'll give you an example. So we're not just talking like all this existential philosophical stuff. Um, there's a popular show on HBO or a show host on HBO called, his name's Bill Maher. You've probably heard of him. He critiqued a few different shows. He did a documentary a few years ago called uh, Religulous, which he critiqued um, faith of any kind. He's an outspoken atheist. It's actually a common topic on his show. Uh, and a few years ago, he invited a New York Times columnist, uh, an author, and he's also a Catholic. His name's Ross Dutat. He invited him on the show, and there's an eight-minute se segment of them discussing God and, and Christianity at length and in a very polite discussion. Um, we're not going to watch all eight minutes, but I do want to show you one small one-minute clip. And I'm going to zero in on Mar. Uh, Dude Hat says some stuff later. In fact, he, he does a pretty terrible job of explaining what. So that's, I mean, he is, I'm like, oh man, I wouldn't want to be in his seat. And I also think he could have done a lot better. So that's I, one of those like catch 22s. But Mar. Uh, I want to zero in on him because it is clear to me that through his life of gathering information and personal experience, he has become very good at delivering polished, pithy statements that sound true, but it's sleight of hand. 
It's like, wait, that sounds really good. People are like, yeah, yeah, you help people clap. And it's like, wait a second. If I really dig into that, I, I, I start to see immediately some flaws. Um, it's kind of one of those old things where if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So I'm going to show you one minute. Watch Mar, and then I'll talk about it. ...to say that if you read the Bible, if you actually look at the first few books of Genesis, whoever wrote the Bible clearly didn't mean to say this is a scientific account of creation, and actually serious Christians have known that all the way back to the first century okay, AD. Okay, well, you know, I always say the Bible is... Div is I like you. <laughs> the Bible's, you know, divided into the crazy and the wicked. You know, you're, you're saying the crazy... I'm going to take a drink of water on that I one. mean, but, but the Bible does say, you know, it's funny, it says, you know, this is 100% true. The Bible says you have to take it like that. Now, if it's not 100% true, I would say the whole thing falls apart. But okay, let's say it's okay to say the crazy stuff. We don't take that. What about the wicked stuff? You know, at the end of Religious, I say if you belong to a social club that contained as much violence, uh, anti-women, anti-homosexuality, just plain wiping out people, genocide for no reason, you would probably resign from that social club. I think a lot of the question, a lot of the question about... <clears throat> All right. I'm going to address two points that Mar makes there. He makes them with much gusto, uh, but it's filled with inaccuracy. And um, number, the first thing, and it falls under the sleight of hand of information. Bill says, if it, the Bible, is not 100% true, the whole thing falls apart. All right, it's the, this is classic, popular, but faulty approach to reading the Bible. All right, it's the same way a lot of Christians mistakenly read the Bible. It's what theologians call a flat reading of Scripture. So Bill and many Christians read the Bible like it's a spreadsheet, as if if there's one decimal point out of place, the whole thing is ruined. And that is not how you read the Bible. The Bible is not a spreadsheet or a manual for living. It is a story, and it's about Jesus being Lord, and it's filled with subjectivity. That's what I would have said if I were Ross. Like, wait a second, who told you the Bible was objective? Who told, who told you that? The Enlightenment. We get into this. I, I'm going to go off on a tangent. I can't. All right. Um, it's filled with differing viewpoints. There's 66 different books. There's even more authors than that. It is filled with all of these different perspectives about this journey and this waiting and this desperation for someone to come. That is what the Bible is about, all right? Number two, and this falls under the, the category of experience. In Bill's experience, he says, one should leave any religion that he accuses of hatred, misogyny, and genocide. All true, by the way. Christianity's been guilty of all of these things. Um, right now, though, his religion, atheism, forced into militarized in China. There are one million Muslims are being forced into concentration camps right now. They're being forced to eat pork. They're being forced to drink alcohol because the Chinese government thinks religion is a disease. So I would ask Bill, how come you haven't left if, you're, if your tribe's guilty of this? But I'm willing to grant him something he doesn't grant Christians. There's nuance to that story. It's not just black and white and clear. There is messiness in life and in the world, and we don't have all the answers. We can't boil everything down to information and experience. It cannot encapsulate humanity, and it definitely can't encapsulate Christ. So these two things are hindering our ability to see Christ.
Um, and this happens in the church, too. Like I said, Christians and Bill Marr, there's many, they, they both read the Bible incorrectly a lot of the times. We need knowledge. We need to embrace nuance and wonder and awe and love and all the wonderfully mysterious blessings that come with that. So I'm going to show you an example of someone experiencing nuance for the first time, seeing the world in a completely different way. I saw a YouTube video recently of a young boy who was colorblind and his dad bought him some Enchroma glasses so that he could see color for the first time. And it's, this is a pretty understated video, but I want you to watch carefully and imagine, remember, this is a young boy who has never seen color. And I'm, we're going to watch the first two minutes and I want you to listen to him, to his dad and what they say to each other, how they respond. So let's watch this. See those colors? Take off your glasses. Is there a difference? We see all of them the same except except this one looks like more brown. Brown? brown. And with your glasses on, does it look red? It looks quite red. Look around. Do you like look normal? Brown? Look good? The grass looks better. The grass looks red. Everything looks cooler. Did the grass looks look brown? Better. I look I love it. Did the grass Grass looked browner. Love you, the grass looked drier. <laughs> Can I show it with the Everything looks so different. Does it? Yeah. <coughs> what does the sky look like? You <laughs> love you, son. Thank you. Put your glasses on. His dad reminds me a lot of God. Um, this is how God wants us to see the world. Nuance, beauty, color, diversity. Uh, nothing. We, we can't even like fathom how to describe the beauty that he's created. We need to be like this boy. We need to be like those shepherds when the angels appeared in the sky. We need to get swept up in that one truth that we cling to, the one certainty that we have. Jesus is Lord. And it's repeated over and over and over again. And so now I want to come back to that, the importance of this, to see the only certainty that we cling to. Because once we see this real magic, once we begin to see nuance and it opens our minds and our hearts to the full gospel, we start viewing people not as others, like tribes, adversaries, strangers, enemies. We start to see them the way the Father does, beautifully and wonderfully made. And most people that we encounter need someone to remind them of that truth. 
They need someone to remind them of what their identity actually is because they have found it and how much information they know and how much personal experience they've acquired. And that is not how identity is formed. It's just a giant pool of insecurity and Christ follow cynicism. What they need to hear is Jesus is Lord. And what I believe as a Christ follower is that the only thing that makes it possible for us to see nuance is Christ. Like that's part of my theology. I think he unlocks everything. He frees us from all the certainties that we crave other than him. And the good news to us, that's good news to us because ultimately all of those things that we want to be certain about, those are burdens that we have to carry around. And he frees us from all of that. And he frees others from that as well. Um, our, ex- our existence as his followers is to be like those shepherds, to believe in the real magic and try to point others to that one truth, Jesus is Lord. You worship. To get them to jump through any like holy hoops, we don't need to attach any strings to how you worship him. We just want them to see his lordship. So how does this play out practically? Like, what's this look like? We talk about that a lot. Um, how does this look in our church and in our lives? Going back to the, the theological pool of Twitter, Pastor Rich Viotas tweeted this. He says, how can you have blank people in your church? Is the modern version of, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then uh, another pastor, Shell Bridges Jones, responded to him. She says, we pastor for nearly 30 years, NRA people, peace activists, Republican officers, people with GED, people with PhD, undocumented immigrants, and law enforcement officers. The one rule in this church, these identities are relative to identity of kingdom of God. And that's the kind of person I want to be because that's who Jesus was. Someone that attracted the polar opposites and then had the audacity to create space at his dinner table for the likes of Simon, who was like a political assassin, and then Matthew, who worked for the enemy, the Roman government. These guys were eating dinner together. That's who Jesus brought into his, not only his social circle, those are the guys that founded the first church. They were if all intended purposes, a big, do a little, that's who I want to be and that's who I want our church to be. So just do a little mental exercise here. In order for you to be capable of loving, I want you to fill in the blank with whoever makes your skin crawl. All right? In order to be capable of loving, maybe it's a person, maybe it's an entire like tribe of people, you need to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And I think this is really difficult right now. I think the cultural climate is testy and divisive, but we cannot, we have to resist the tribalism and the sleight of hand. Don't live out of the reality of your own curated information and personal experience. Remember who's on the throne of our lives and live out of that knowledge that Jesus is Lord and that is completely freeing. Let's pray.